Hello and welcome to Everything Considered. My name is Gautam. And my name is Samson. And today we have another episode of On The Fly For You, where I'll bring up something that's been on my mind recently, and Samson and I will have a totally unrehearsed conversation where we explore it together and see what new understanding of the world we synthesize together. Uh, There's no script, no agenda, and no end goal. It's funny, we say here, there's no script, and then this is a script. (laughs) Nice. But aside from that, everything is on the fly. So today, Gautam will be bringing up the topic of food, specifically from a interaction that he's had recently with a person that we had met in our past. And that takes us on a journey to discuss different experiences we've had with food and how it's connected us to different kinds of people, uh, how food can be a shared experience that then leads to something more. Um, but then we also talk about uh, some general things with our family and how food can bring about this very deep sense of nostalgia and bring you home in many ways. And uh, eventually we get into talks about the neurobiology of food. And we have a special guest from one of our uh, friends from undergrad who's now doing a PhD in neuroscience to get some more insights on that. But uh, but yeah, we, we hope you enjoy. Again, it, the conversation takes uh, quite a, a turn in many directions, but uh, we hope it's something that brings some insight. Yeah, we're we're going to travel across the globe from India to South America, back to California, and uh, go on quite the wild ride. Lots of anecdotes, lots of little stories. So with that, uh, let's talk about food. Tell me more. The first thing that I wanted to bring up today was a thought about food and I know that we talk about food a lot primarily because <laughs> I have great interest in food but this is this is more about a shared experience that we had uh, when you came down to South America so a couple weeks back um, while we were talking I got a message from a chef that we met in Peru. Can you guess who that is? Ooh, this must be Chef Suresh. Yes, <laughs> nice. No way. Why is he Why is he messaging you? So he messaged me and he... Wait, should we give some context as to who Chef Suresh is real quick? Sure. So um, when Samson came down to South America, we were going on a couple different uh, hiking adventures in Peru. And so one of them was the standard uh, hike to Machu Picchu. And another one was to uh, the mountains of Huascaran National Park in uh, kind of northern Peru. So there there are two big mountain ranges in Peru, the Cordillera Blanca and Negra, and I think there's also Azul. So uh, this is one of those. I don't I don't remember exactly which one, but it's the one that's a little further inland. So we, I saw a picture of this national park uh, one day a couple of years back, and I was like, man, it would be super cool to go there one day. And when I realized that we were going to have like four or five, uh, three or four days in Peru um, before Samson had to go back to California to start med school, and I had to go back to Brazil. Um, I was like, man, this would be a great opportunity to go hiking there. So we took a bus from Lima, went to Huaraz, uh, which is the main city hub uh, to go hiking in Huascaran. And in this 
uh, city, I, I was specifically looking for vegetarian restaurants. Um, one, because in general, they're just safer in terms of food practices and stuff. Two, they cater to tourists mostly. So they usually have um, either English speaking people there or English menus, uh, things like that. And three, because I'm vegan. <laughs> and Samson was vegan during that month. And Samson was vegan. For yes, the most he was. part. For the most part. He was 90% vegan. 90% vegan, 20% not. <laughs> and so while we were in Waras, we found a restaurant that was uh, the, the chef of the restaurant. And this was uh, operated, I think, out of his house. The chef was Indian. Uh, and this is super odd in, you know, a really small town in, in Peru uh, operating a vegetarian restaurant. It, it was super out of the blue. So uh, we go there. Uh, I believe the night before we were leaving the town and uh, we had an incredible lunch there, uh, incredible dinner there. And it was a flat fee dinner as well. And in Peru, they have this concept called menu, which basically means they give you uh, a full three to five course meal for uh, a flat price. So this, I believe at his restaurant, it was 15 soles. And so we got a soup at the beginning. Uh, and and, and it was also unlimited also unlimited yeah, so <laughs> his yeah his place in particular deal. yep yep, definitely <laughs> especially since we were so so hungry i remember before that we walked to like the supermarket and we bought like apples and crackers and things like that yep. and then going to this restaurant having unlimited food um i'm surprised we weren't the ones that put him out of business but <laughs> so he he messages me every once in a while, like every couple months, um, and he'll just like check in, like maybe maybe twice over the course of the last year. And he messaged me on WhatsApp a couple days back, and he says, "Hey, uh, I hope you're well." Uh, and I I decide to like message him back, catch up a little bit, and he. I think the reason he wanted to reach out to me was he was asking if there were any jobs, restaurant jobs that I knew of in uh, the states. And really? the reason is because, yeah, so as you can imagine, the coronavirus situation everywhere in the world is is not the best. Mm -hmm. And especially for places that depend on income because of tourists, they're particularly hard hit oh. because no one yeah. is, you know, going on vacation right now. So... Waras, uh, according to him, uh, like there's no tourists coming in, so he has very little business, especially being a vegetarian restaurant in a country right. that's not primarily vegetarian. Mm -hmm. So he, he, his restaurant has been closed since February, and he's planning on permanently closing it uh, and leaving. And he's thinking of going to other places, maybe Brazil, maybe the U.S., wherever oh, he can man. get a job. Wow, that's and so sad. Because it, it's been there for like eight to ten years, right? That restaurant. It's been there for a while, yeah. And just imagine, like, if we were that happy to see that restaurant and connect with him, like, imagine how many people have had that experience. Yeah, especially because one thing that was characteristic about this restaurant is he made an active effort to really engage with whoever was coming in to dine at the restaurant. Like, mm -hmm. he came uh, initially. He was just kept asking us if we wanted any more, and he'd. He'd uh, make some playful jokes here and there. But then eventually, as we were eating, he came and sat down with us and then told us a little bit more about his life and uh, probed us about what we were up to. And it became very much uh, as if we were just having dinner at an at a family friend's house, at an uncle's house, which was right, very atypical to have that happen in this random place in Peru, of all places. 
Yeah, and I mean, you're you're exactly right. It felt like a family friend's house because he would do it like since it's like unlimited meals, and there was no, um, there there was no idea of like, oh, if you buy more food, I'm going to profit more and stuff. He would do the very characteristic like Indian, Indian thing, yeah. parent thing of just offloading more and more food, you know? yeah, w- without being asked, like unsolicited. <laughs> yeah, increases in food <laughs> being delivered to you. <laughs> And the food was fantastic, and it was very refreshing to have, uh, you know, uh, kind of fusion Indian food, um, dal and chapatis and things like that, uh, in the middle of Peru after what seemed like months since I've had that kind of food. Yeah. And so, yeah, like he sat down with us, and then we started talking with the with the other people in um, in the restaurant, right? And they're uh, where I believe they were travelers from Europe. I, I remember one of them being from Germany, but I don't remember where the other two were from. Um, but yeah, so it was super, super cool. Uh, incredible experience. I'm, I'm so glad to have connected with them. So yeah, he messages me. He's like, I've moved to a different city in Peru for the time being. He's more on the Amazon side um, of Peru. So kind of Northeastern area. And it was Wait, really, Galvin, really, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could give a quick bio on Chef Suresh real quick? Because he has a very interesting story itself. Do you remember? Okay, well, let's see what I remember. So yeah. he grew up in India, and he grew up as part of a very wealthy family. And um, we we called him Suresh Chacha while we were there, which is a very like friendly, familial way of saying uncle uh, in Hindi. And he, I believe he didn't want anything to do with this like big money thing and wanted to make uh, a life for himself. I don't remember where all he moved before coming to Peru, but I believe he's married to a Peruvian woman now uh, living in Peru. And the stories he told us about being in Peru were the most fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, it's been almost exactly one year now since, since we went and ate in his restaurant, <laughs> which is kind of surprising. Um, the, the the stories that stick out into my in, in my mind is his um, entrepreneurship almost and how he said he was given like small loans while he was there from friends and he one day he had this idea of like how can I make more of this money and he said oh well you know I can I can buy milk and sugar and make ice cream and then sell it for like five times the price and he told us how he started off with like 50 soles and something and made it into 140 soles um, just by selling the ice cream and all the ice cream was sold out and then he was able to go on to a, a larger and larger uh, enterprise and then one day like he he got robbed and again starts from ground zero and no money gets some loans starts growing the the money paying back the loans etc um he had uh, another very enterprising idea to i believe um buy chocolate manufacturing uh material so to get the raw goods from peru uh where he's located get the uh processing and uh the the consumable chocolate manufacturing uh mechanisms from other countries i believe from india and situate it somewhere in peru and then you know blow people like ghirardelli out of the water (laughs) (laughs) i don't really know if he was able ever to do that because uh obviously the situation does not seem so good for him now but yeah very enterprising individual was there anything else that you remember about him yeah i um it might have been the reverse it might have been 
that he was trying to set up a uh, like chocolate manufacturing place in South America and then having them distribute to India. Um, oh, okay, okay. But but uh, another side comment was he had a really interesting story of meeting his wife, who is uh, a Peruvian native, and I, I believe mm-hmm. they met at some uh, was was it a Hindu event that was happening in South America that he had met her. And then oh, I they, don't remember. they hit it off and then he ended up staying in Peru, something along those lines. But I, I, I think I was struck that um, Hinduism, which is a, uh, you know, a religion that I primarily think of as being attached to Indians in, in India and any other place that has Indians in it. Mm. But um, it seems like that religion has a much larger uh uh, scope of of reach in terms of who ends up becoming interested in the philosophy behind it behind the teachings and uh, it was just interesting that he had found some of that in a place that I wouldn't have thought of in South America mm-hmm. it's it's crazy that you bring that up because I was just thinking about how after I left Brazil before coming back to the U.S. the first thing I did was go to India and on my so while I was there, you know, I'm I'm having this like language soup in my head where I'm not able to tell like Portuguese apart from Tamil, apart from the Hindi <laughs> Hindi you see written on signs and stuff. And um, on my flight back, while I'm waiting in the airport before boarding that flight, I hear a group of three or four people speaking Portuguese, like Brazilian Portuguese, and my mind was absolutely in blown. In India, yeah. So in oh, wow. the Chennai International Airport, I'm sitting there waiting for my flight. And I hear these four people speaking Brazilian Portuguese. And I'm I'm so confused right now because uh-huh. what initially happens is I'm sitting down. I hear some people speaking Tamil. Obviously, I understand them. I hear some people speaking English. Obviously, I understand them. I hear some people speaking Portuguese. Obviously, I understand them. But I'm not thinking about that initially. I'm, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is a language that's not spoken here. And... So I'm just like kind of just like like reading a little bit um, and and listening in on these conversations. People are so interesting, especially people in airports who are going to all all different sides of the globe. And it strikes me after like two or three minutes, like oh my god, this thing that I'm peripherally hearing is Portuguese. And so I go uh, up, I I go up and sit next to them just to make sure I'm not absolutely crazy. And yes, they are speaking Portuguese. And so I strike conversation with them and I'm like, hey, like, are, are you guys speaking Portuguese? And they're like, what? Because they don't think that anyone with my skin color and, and all in India speaks Portuguese. Um, so in their minds, so they're having you, a totally... you asked them in Portuguese? I did, yeah. Uh, I was like, se está falando portuguese? And, and they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so they we weren't start... Indian, it sounds like? No, no, no. Totally Brazilian Portuguese people from Brazil. I see. Um, and uh general like more lighter skinned uh that sort mm-hmm. of thing very, very typically brazilian looking which i guess a lot of people around the world might not know but i, I had that idea stamped in my head wow. um, and so they we, we start talking and they start recognizing my accent is from the the location that i was staying in in minas and i, I that start... is so funny because <laughs> that, that same thing happened when you picked me up uh when i arrived at rio and we were taking the uber to to get to our place that we were staying that they had yeah. recognized which specific like area of brazil you're from i was blown away when that <laughs> happened because you're only in brazil for what four to five months by that point right but then right. but then in four to five months 
the Uber driver does not think of you as like a foreigner who's visiting this country. They think of you as someone who is from a very specific rural place of the country. And Mm -hmm. I was I was blown away. I was blown away. Anyways, back back to what you're saying. It's I mean, it's a it's a funny experiment uh, that I could ask people like, where do you think I'm from? Because I look pretty racially ambiguous in terms of Brazil. Like they don't identify me as uh, non-Brazilian, right? Because Pl- there plus are your of... beard covered most of your face, so <laughs> there wasn't a lot of a lot to work with there. In observing my beard, yeah. <laughs> they weren't able to tell if the beard was Portuguese or not. <laughs> and it it was super cool because I when I went to the northeastern tip of Brazil, um, we. We would add, we we would talk to some shop owners and they would kind of gently make fun of my my Portuguese because there are things that I say uh, that are made fun of across Brazil. I guess the region um, that I was staying in in Minas in Uberlândia, the idea of saying your R's like R, so saying Uberlândia instead of Uberlândia, um, is very typical of Minas and very typical of Uberlândia, mm-hmm. and. So when when I would say things with with an R like that, there's no word coming coming to mind right now. But when I would say when I would say words with an R like that, they would be like, oh, like fofinho, which means that's cute. Um, <laughs> and so this guy, when when we picked you up from the airport, it was it was so funny because I spoke with him very briefly, and he was like, oh, are you showing your friend around Rio? And I was like, oh, I, I'm not from Rio. And he's like, oh, where are you from? And the moment someone asked me that, I'm like, oh, can you guess? And immediately the first thing that their mind goes to is the opposite corner of brazil from wherever they are <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> so this guy in rio was guessing like oh you must be from you know the, the northeast you must be from like acre or something like you must be from pernambuco i don't know and i was like nope 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 i'm from uberlandia <laughs> <laughs> actually i'm from the united states <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm from danville <laughs> i'm from danville california <laughs> But honestly, I feel like I, I've had not dissimilar experiences with people in the U.S. who have um, accents from other countries, especially countries in which they learned English as their second language um, in school. So a lot of European countries, so people who have like a slight bit of a French accent or slight bit of a Belgian accent, uh, a Flemish accent or something like that. Um, and I'm not totally able to tell if, you know, that's just how they speak. That's their, you know, a, a little bit of their idiolect coming across or if they're from a different place in the U.S. that I've never been. Um, because when, when you listen to it, a, a lot of people who, who come from New York sound very different from us Californians. And, you know, they make fun of how we speak. So who knows? <laughs> um, OK, so coming back to those people uh, at the airport, they... So we started talking and um, we spoke for, you know, uh, like 30, 40 minutes before we had to board our plane. And it was so interesting to hear that very similarly to how Suresh Chacha met his wife in South America, these people, they, they hadn't met their significant other, but they had traveled to India for a spiritual religious type of conference there and people all over the world were visiting uh this uh place in chennai or near chennai um to participate in this and the fact that i was able to connect with them purely because of knowing portuguese was was insane but i wanted to bring that up because the 
like this idea of spirituality is, or the, very specifically, this Hindu spirituality um, has, on multiple occasions, uh, we, we have observed not to be limited to India, where you have people coming in and you have people leaving. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so coming back to Suresh Chacha. Mm-hmm. So yes, he well, was there something else you wanted to mention? So yeah, he met his wife in uh, in South America, but I cut you off there. Um, yeah, I, I think that was that was pretty much uh, everything that was mentioned. He said that there were times that he comes to the the states, and mm-hmm. he's been to San Francisco before. So I think that's when you mentioned like, oh, if you're ever here again, uh, please let us know. We would love to. We'd love to see you. We'd love to host you in some way. And then yeah. I think that's when the contact info was exchanged. But that's yeah. great that he he followed up on that. That's that's so cool. Right. He he actually messaged me, uh, I believe, in like October, November. And he messaged me. He's like, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Will you be around? And unfortunately, I was coming back to Brazil. San Francisco just uh, a couple of weeks later. Uh, I, see, um, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, so he reaches out to me and he, he tells me about like the, the hardships he's facing and stuff right now. It's sad to hear about. Um, and I, I was really thankful to hear, um, I'm, I'm really thankful to know that he is, uh, like at least alive and, uh, doing well, um, healthy. Uh, he's in a different part of Peru and, you know, he's had to uproot his life, which is very unfortunate. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear from him. Um, so the reason we went on this 20-minute tangent about who Suresh Chacha is is because I wanted to bring up uh, specifically some ideas that, that we discussed in this conversation. Um, so while we were in that restaurant, he sat down with us and he spoke with us. And like his restaurant is made up of like four plastic tables inside his living room. And there are people to our left who are speaking other languages, people to, to our right who are speaking other languages. He speaks his, a, a whole host of, of languages. Um, and he sits down with us. And while we're, we're having dinner, we're, we're having these amazing conversations about the adventures he's had all around the globe. And then the adventures that we've had, the adventures that the other travelers who, who, are, who are there have had. Um, it was just a very cool experience. And the thought that I had about this is if you think about the social connections that that we made uh, while we were in South America, albeit some of them very transient, a lot of them were kind of mediated by food. And and that's the thing that I wanted to get to. It, it was really cool for me to see that we were able to connect with Suresh Chacha, but also the other people in this restaurant uh, over food um, and and while while sharing a meal. And I, I thought it would be really cool um, to to explore this more, how, how food is kind of universally, uh, and, and meals are universally uh, a medium for, for social exchange. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you mentioned our dinner uh, at Suresh's restaurant. Uh, are there any other immediate memories that come to the front of your mind about some of these food-related connections that were made? Well, I I think in general with with every connection, and there there, there are other examples that do come to mind, I think they're primarily formed based on something that that we share with that person. So I think food is overall the 
uh, the the glue between us, right? That that is bringing us together. If you if you think about it, the the rest of our time while we were in um, uh, in Peru hiking and stuff, we were primarily like doing our own thing. Uh, sometimes we would meet up with our uh, hiking group and things like that, but very very briefly. Um, but it was times that we were we, we were having a meal together that we really connected. The the other thing that comes to mind is our hikes in uh, our hikes to Machu Picchu. Like we met some. Italians who were doing study abroad in Chile, who were traveling to Peru, um, yeah. and the the cool thing about that is between in in all these situations, there's always something that we share, um, and in the context of Waras, where we met Suresh Chacha, it was like we had something to connect over. You know, we 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 both have uh, we're, we're, we we both grew up in Indian culture and, and that sort of thing, and then the people in um, uh, that I met with, it, that that we met while hiking to Machu Picchu. You know, they spoke Spanish. We spoke Spanish. We we were both in like a an exchange. They were in an exchange sort of situation. We were also in a new country, so we had things to share there. But uh, I I know you have some some thoughts to share about us sharing that like Indian culture with the chef. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll get that to that in a, in a second. But um, I I definitely agree that I think during specifically our Salkantai trail hike that that was over the course of three to four days until we ended up on um uh ended up reaching Machu Picchu uh it it definitely was those moments uh when we would take a break from a very long and strenuous hike up this mountain where that that was the first moment that we would be able to really connect with this very diverse group of people from all over the world and to um just literally break bread with them and i think uh i think that was really a a really cool experience for us because during the hike primarily you and i uh are are paired up and and walking uh Mm -hmm. together as as and having our conversations and uh just going about the hike together but then it was the the moments where we would have some respite in the form of food um, that we'd be able to really learn these very uh, different stories from all these people that have s- had such interesting lives and are from such vastly different places that I think was always primarily centered on food. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that is is such a, a staple of connection in so many cultures and in so many different contexts. And I think uh, I think what's interesting here is, um, you know, in this situation, the food is the commonality rather than any individual person in terms of what their shared experience was. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You, all of these people have had vastly different experiences, but we all share this one <laughs> desire of we are so hungry right now, we need to eat. <laughs> and having that, you know, that dopamine rush of finally getting food and then being around these people and having these conversations as we are, you know, nourishing ourselves, that really brings about uh, a, a certain depth of connection that would not have been there because potentially without any active effort, our different experiences and different backgrounds might have prevented us from ever intersecting in the first place. And I think right. that in itself is, is a really powerful utility that that food has in terms of connecting people 
from from very different contexts and different different places of life. But on the flip side of that, um, I, I wanted to make a quick comment on what I was thinking about when you were mentioning uh, our experience uh, going to Peru and finding this hole-in-the-wall Indian restaurant with a person who's from India and and also your experiences at that airport in India meeting Brazilian Portuguese people. And I think for that, that, that is so interesting how um, when you're in a new environment and if there is some part of your identity that you see in someone else, then suddenly that becomes this bridge to to connect you and to sort there is this sort of magnetism that brings those two or three people together that I think is fascinating to think about because that commonality really changes depending on the context and the environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, when we're thinking of, of th this example with uh, being in Peru, you know, we are fundamentally quite different from Suresh Chacha, right? We grew up right. in the States. Uh, we uh, are coming to Peru to, to visit, whereas he grew up in India and now lives in Peru and, you know, has a wife that is Peruvian. Uh, vastly different life experiences. But there was something that was so refreshing about, you know, as we are in this new country, as we are tourists, as we are exploring a new place, we see someone who is clearly Indian and suddenly we're like, there's another one of us out here, you know, and we just <laughs> like that commonality of having this Indian heritage brought us together and made it such an easy uh, connection to to initially form because of that shared experience. And and then if we look at your airport experience where, you know, now you're with a bunch of quote unquote Suresh Chachas, right? But those aren't the people you're connecting with. <laughs> you are connecting with the one person who is. Uh, or the or the few people who are Brazilian Portuguese, and that's this other element of your identity that you connect with in this new place that then brings you back to to your experiences in Brazil, and you connect immediately over that. I would have loved, I would have absolutely loved to have heard a recording of that initial interaction with you and those Brazilian Portuguese people at that airport because mm -hmm. I can imagine the the sense of joy and the sense of like wonder of being surprised by something like that in this uh, completely different place. And I, I think about that same thing when I go to India, you know, because I, you know, my Malayalam, uh, the language that's spoken in Kerala is, is okay, not great. It's more conversational, but I still struggle sometimes to communicate. I can understand better than I can speak. But mm -hmm. uh, one thing that, that I've realized for myself is, you know, when I'm in India, when I'm in an airport, when I'm outside, if I see someone who is, uh, not brown, who is maybe um, who looks white or, you know, speaks with a British accent or an American accent, I am drawn to uh, to interact with them and to to touch base and and see how they're doing and let them know that I am also one of them <laughs> to, to a certain extent, because right. uh, a part of me like really resonates with uh, that aspect of uh, of my identity of being someone who's primarily an English speaker, someone who um, is like grew up in the United States, and the that shared experience is similar to how I'm sure your uh, Brazilian friends in the airport felt. 
mm-hmm. know, the the people that I spoke to uh, in uh, India who were, you know, either from the US or from the UK, they were delightfully surprised. They're like, oh, this person, because we're, we're almost disguised in a certain way, right? We look right. like everyone else who is around them and they assume mm-hmm. that we are inherently different. But then to, for them to just hear the way we speak English and to be like, to realize, oh, wow, okay, uh, we we can be friends immediately. Like, we have shared experience <laughs> that that can immediately uh, help us, you know, uh, like have a conversation, interact in a in a seamless way that doesn't necessarily have the same initial formalities or the fi- the same uh, losses in translation that might happen from mm-hmm. two people in a different background. And I, I feel like there there's so many instances of this in 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 a lot of different places in our lives where, you know, when I was in, uh, in elementary school and middle school, you know, uh, my school was, was fairly diverse. Uh, and I, I had friends from, from, uh, different races. And, but what I would notice is whenever there was a, uh, an event where parents would come, for example, an open house or a science fair, mm-hmm. my, my parents would just find whoever else was Indian and then they would just be like <laughs> lumped together and they'd walk around. And I wasn't particularly close to like the Indian child that is in the same grade as me. Right. But then I will inevitably uh, be like walking around with them because my parents and their parents have just found themse- found each other in this sea of, of, of new faces and new people and in this new land. And uh yeah I, I i think i think the instances where we find commonality uh depending on what stage of life we're in is is fascinating because that changes depending on our experience and it changes depending on where we are and it is something that is very much malleable but is also something that i think to some extent also stays very uh consistent and very same in many ways and mm-hmm. yeah like for example the, the indianness of us in peru i mean just us being brown and looking indian that connects us to Sri chacha but right. then for you to connect with these brazilian people you would not have been able to connect with them two years ago or three years ago it was only like the, the six months before that that you right. were able to acquire this commonality that then allowed you to connect with these people in this vastly different place I think it's it's really interesting to explore not only what is the commonality that we have, but how does that commonality define help us define ourselves, you know? And how does that what can what can we understand about how we define ourselves by how we make these connections? And so let me let me try and explain this a little better. So when especially when I see like an American in India, um, especially in Chennai and stuff where it's like the places I frequent in Chennai are probably not places that most touristy Americans would go to. Like there are very specific places that you go to if you like the tourist destinations, you know, like there's uh, huge monuments and that sort of stuff. But um, when I see Americans in other parts, I immediately have this like almost drive to like connect with them you know and i know that i'm under this this veil you know this disguise of looking like everyone around me but i can just imagine i've never actually done that but i can just imagine the surprise on their face when um if i were to reach out and 
one one i i think this is interesting to think like okay among in this sea of indians i i am singling out my identity as an american as an english speaker um having associated with people of lighter skin and everything growing up in suburban california uh my entire life i associate myself with them a lot and so I will look at this person uh, who's generally lighter skinned, speaking English, et cetera, and I'll have that drive to reach out to them. I I believe, let's see, three years ago, I went on a hike, um, or two years ago, I went on a hike with my dad in the Himalayas. And in our hiking group, there were two Americans who were living uh, somewhere in Africa, and they were traveling to India for vacation, there were a bunch of Indians and there were two Germans. And the Americans and the Germans obviously speak English. Um, the German uh, the German father uh, spoke Hindi as well because he was living in India. And the German son, I believe, spoke English and German. And so immediately when we formed this hiking group, I gravitated towards the Americans. And I was like, oh, you know, we share our language. I don't know Hindi that well at all. Um, like when if someone was to tell me like an hour long story, maybe I would get the, the context of it. And I could tell that I was immediately gravitating towards the, the Americans. And as the hike went on, I... I slowly kind of separated from them and gravitated back towards the younger Indians. So people around my age, like 20 to 25. And although there were certain things that I shared with the Americans in terms of language and, and uh, culture, uh, there were certain things like language, culture, and heritage that I, I shared with the, the Indians as well. And it's, I think, an interesting study to see how much I identify with each of those identities, for lack of a better term, and how that progressed over time, where initially my first thing was like, okay, language and then familiarity of their skin color. That was the first thing that I was drawn towards. Um, and then over time, I became drawn more to the nuances of Indian culture that I shared with these other people from India. So, oh, there are people from Chennai who speak like the same dialect of Tamil that I do. Okay, I connected with them more. Oh, there are people who are my age at university at, uh, in different places in India, I connected with them more. And so it, I think it's kind of interesting to, to see how, how uh, like, I, I think from that interaction, I'm able to identify, okay, so what are all of the different identities that I hold in myself? And how much weight do I put on each of those? And how much do each of those make an impact on me? Um, I think we're all an amalgam of all of these different influences that the outside world have has had on us since a, a very young age. I, one funny one funny thing that just came to mind while I was with my parents in India in November there was someone that I saw wearing uh Brazilian sandals and it's uh uh these are sandals that I'm, you can get anywhere in the world but they're very very typical uh to Brazil and it had like the Brazilian flag on it and stuff and this guy was wearing a shirt that had some uh Portuguese writing on it and so Either this guy had just traveled to Brazil and then come to India or he was Brazilian and I was putting my money on the ladder and I walk up to him and I was wearing one of my shirts from Brazil then so it has writing in Portuguese and I was so excited to like see all this stuff about him. This was like during uh, middle of November or end of November so middle of my trip month long trip in India and I hadn't heard Portuguese in so long and I was like oh are you, I spoke to him a little in Portuguese and I was like, hey, are, are you from Brazil? 
this guy gives me like a disgusted look and quickly Mm. walks away from me and i was shocked and the first thing that i did was i messaged my friends in brazil i was like hey i thought all brazilians were supposed to be friendly (laughs) 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 what happened here and And, and you asked them this and you asked them this in portuguese in portuguese yeah, yeah yeah i see and they were like you know they probably thought that you were like and there you know there are a lot of like tour guides and stuff in india who have learned other languages to uh, cater mm. to those uh, cultures so they were like you know maybe that's a possibility they thought that you were trying to sell something or something and you had somehow picked up portuguese and that made me really sad but um <laughs> it also goes to show that the fact that i was driven to reach out to this guy like that portuguese and brazilian culture was to even the small extent that i was able to experience it is so strongly ingrained in who i am Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah definitely i think um there there have been a lot of instances like this um i think the the ones that come to mind right now are when we were hiking in chile you remember there were there was an australian and an american if i'm not mistaken is that what you remember as well <laughs> uh for the silicon tie trail yeah yeah yeah, there was uh there was an Australian, there there was an American couple that had a very interesting story of like renting a uh, van, right? Or a buying van a van. Then, yeah, buying a van and then just traveling through South America and having some very interesting experiences and sometimes very dangerous experiences in those right. travels. I think I think uh, I experienced the same sort of self-identity thing when I was speaking to them because I think initially I was drawn to them and I was like, "Oh, you know, uh people speaking english and then over time as like i heard more spanish and i was getting more comfortable with spanish i started gravitating towards the italians who are like more our age and that sort of thing and it was nice because they're the italians that we were speaking to they also knew spanish but not at a like an expert fluent level right at a similar level to us (laughs) yeah so it was really nice that we were able to practice our spanish with these people but it was calibrated to our proficiency which Mm -hmm. was really nice for for us to to practice in that way that was really that was a lot of fun definitely i think it's it's insane how language can be this like huge connector there there was a um a postdoc that i worked with in mayo that i still hold very near and dear to my heart his name is federico and he he speaks italian uh because he uh grew up in italy and he also speaks fluent spanish because he did uh, higher education in Spain. And then he also speaks English because he's <laughs> in the U.S. now. And so we, <laughs> there was one day, I think I might've told you this, uh, like at the end of the day while I was working and uh, while I was working there and he, he had explained an entire protocol to me in Spanish. And I think he had just been like listening to something in Spanish or something earlier that day. I understood most of it, but there were some gaps and so I had I had written down some notes on the protocol that he had printed out. And I asked him, like, hey, so what did you mean by, like, this? I didn't totally understand this word. And he looks at me. He's like, what do you mean you didn't? Oh, I was speaking in Spanish, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was cool for us to, to connect over um, that common language that, <laughs> that we share. Um, <laughs> so th- there were some other incidences, instances that I wanted to bring up. Um one was while I was in Brazil, I went to an Indian restaurant in Brasilia when I had gone there for a frisbee tournament. And the owner was 
Indian and he had lived for some time in Chennai. And what happened was I was I was helping a friend prepare for med school interviews then. So I was kind of preoccupied as I was like ordering food and stuff. I was video chatting my friend and throughout my conversation with my friend, this guy just starts bringing me like free food. <laughs> and I was like, huh, this is kind of interesting. And after I end the conversation, I finish my meal. I go up and speak to the chef. Uh, we learned that, you know, we have a common language. He speaks some Tamil and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, oh, dude, do you think you could speak some Tamil for me? I haven't heard it in so long, which Whoa. was crazy, crazy, because my Tamil is not that good, you know? Uh-huh. And so another instance where, you know, there was a shared cultural thing there, but then also we, we shared that experience over food, so to speak. Um, wow. Another instance in India was I... Um, I was at a wedding and there was a performance going on um, at the wedding and I was sitting amongst some of my family members and then some people that uh, were from the other family, I believe. And um, one of them uh, spoke to me briefly during this performance. He was like, oh, what are you doing? And stuff like that. I was like, oh, I'm uh, in uh, med school, blah, 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 blah. And um, we, we chat for a very short while and then we go our separate ways. And later that night, uh, when we're all in the dining hall, uh, we're eating dinner across from each other. And I, I don't think much of it, but as he's um, as he's leaving, he bades me farewell and says, oh, good luck with, with all of your endeavors and everything in life. And I was totally taken aback because I, I didn't feel like I had made an extremely strong connection with this random, you know, 70-year-old guy, but he still thought that he would reach out to me and say that as he was just passing by um, mm. at the, in, in the dining hall. Um, and my, my parents and I still discuss that guy sometimes because <laughs> it, it, it was just really interesting, the, the stuff that we spoke about during that performance and then the fact that he, he had the mind to reach out. But anyway, um, okay, a couple more experiences. In, uh, I know I'm listing out a bunch of things, but it's just- No, this is, this is great. <laughs> You're getting like uh, a chance to relive my philosophies as I was in Brazil over the last year. But yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so the last one I wanted to bring up was a, um, a two people that I would interact with a lot while I was in Brazil. One of them was Marcio, who was perhaps single-handedly one of the the biggest influences in my development as a Portuguese speaker and. He and I would go on super, super long walks, mostly in the uh, park, this giant park in the middle of Uberlândia. And we, the last day that I was there, the last weekend I was there, uh, he invited me over for dinner. Uh, and uh, so his mother was there, he was there, and I was there. And we shared a meal of only food that I would normally eat. So like just fresh fruits <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> he, he had made uh, soup and that kind of stuff as well. And the fact that I was able to connect with his mother who does, he, so he speaks English, French, uh, Portuguese, Japanese, whole bunch of different things. Wow. Um, his mother only speaks Portuguese. Uh, at least that's the only language that we can connect in. And so it was so interesting that we connected over Portuguese. I was able to connect with his mother and, um, the other person was the head of the Portuguese department at my university. Uh, so we had this like exchange uh, idea where he would teach me Portuguese and I would teach him English. And every couple of days or at least once a week, we would uh, go out to lunch together. So he would teach me a bunch of stuff in Portuguese. 
and then we would go out to lunch together at a at a local restaurant somewhere somewhere within walking distance and either we would speak in english or we would speak in portuguese and hmm. the fact that that time was <laughs> i was going to say catered but uh was was tailored to sharing language and cultural experiences uh, and the fact that food was the the medium their food was the lubricant between us uh, that was it, it was just really interesting to see that it was a, a recurring theme throughout my year <laughs> yeah how did that uh, that relationship that that structure of your interactions first become uh, initiated it, it was pretty simple um, I I emailed some of the professors in the, so I was most closely tied to the linguistics department um, in Uberlandia and uh, at the Federal University. And I emailed a couple of them and I was like, hey, I want to, I, I think my Portuguese has come up to a good level, but there's a lot of things like subjunctive <laughs> mostly <laughs> that I don't have a very good grasp of. I would love if someone could, you know, uh, sit down with me and, and teach me those things. Uh, because I, I really value the structured learning environment. And uh, they were like, yeah, reach out to um, Peterson. And I was like, okay. So I sent him an email. Uh, his name is spelled Peterson, but it's uh, pronounced Peterson. Um, uh, I, what's my name? It <laughs> doesn't have Sam in it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so My he, name is Samson Peter for anyone who's listening. <laughs> Or as I call you, Sam Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he um, he he responds to my email and he's like, "Hey, yeah, why don't we just? Uh, I need to improve my English because I'll be traveling to New York in uh, the coming months. So why don't you teach me English and I'll teach you Portuguese?" And I was like, "Sounds good." And this was not a time commitment that I wanted to really invest uh, in because. I just, there were some very particular things in Portuguese that I wanted to learn. And I didn't have a lot of flexibility in terms of me being able to dedicate time to teaching him English. And in the end, it became very biased towards me where he would teach me a lot more Portuguese than I would teach him English. Um, and I think that his motivation to learn English was just much lower than my motivation to learn Portuguese. Because for him, it was more out of interest. And for me, it was out of survival. <laughs> so... Yeah, with that, we just started our um, our little weekly uh, lunch meetings. Wow, what a what a beautiful symbiotic relationship that that became. I, I I'd like to think it was symbiotic, but in all honesty, it was parasitic. it was like ninety twenty. <laughs> <laughs> it was ninety twenty. <laughs> nice, nice. Wow, that yeah, food food definitely has that that way to center any sort of other interaction as a i mean like if you want to uh you know interview someone for advice if you want to uh get someone's take on something if you want to uh record a podcast with something uh, something if you want to just become acquaintances with someone usually if you want to go on a date like what 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 are all of those do things it over centered food. around yeah. yeah it's always centered around food and i think there's something that is left unfulfilled if some interaction like that is not capped off with some sort of meal. And hmm, that's that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. It's interesting that even in our uh, university, we have coffee with a professor and dine with a professor, you know, and you you also have office hours with a professor, but that's more of to ask questions. The, the meetings in which you get to really 
get to know them and for them to get to know you are over coffee or over a meal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like during med school interviews, one thing that I really enjoyed is uh, when we'd have lunches, that would be the time where we could uh, interact with older years at the, uh, the med school class and mm-hmm. uh, just over the food that was being given to us during our interview day. And that was a really nice time to get some casual, unsolicited, um, uh, or n- not unsolicited. I meant uh, <laughs> uh, just uh, takes on on the med school that were unfiltered um, from the the med school class. And having a, a meal to share was the medium to really facilitate that that kind of interaction. Yeah. Uh, food, I, I would, I would love to spend an entire other episode on talking about the food itself. Um, and I think, I think that this conversation has more been about the, the connections we make with people over food, but I think it, it would be super interesting to explore what it is about the food itself that, um, that makes it uh, a connection between people. Because if you think about it at, um, when we go to uh, a gathering that's mostly Indians, it's all Indian food, right? And when you go mm-hmm. to gatherings with people of other cultures, you'll you'll have a lot of different types of food. There's uh, one instance where I was at a social gathering in Minnesota where the the food everyone brought food from all of their respective things. I didn't bring. I brought like cupcakes or something from the local supermarket, but everyone it was a potluck. And the um, my postdoc's wife, also Italian made the most amazing tiramisu that I've ever had. And again, it was like very specific to their culture and uh, also this kind of uh, medium for for social connection. Um, yeah, I'm, that I'm, makes me think of a very specific instance that happened to me that kind of merges these two things that we've ta- been talking about in terms of uh, sh- shared you know, commonality that brings two people together and then food as a medium to connect as well. Where um, there was one time where in undergrad, I would uh, volunteer at a free clinic in Tijuana through um, a student group at UCSD and through UCSD's med school. And uh, usually after we'd have our morning clinic, uh, the volunteers would go uh, out to eat somewhere locally before heading back across the border. And uh, on on one specific day, I um, I had some other work that I needed to get done. Uh, I think I might have had a midterm the next day or a project that was due. So instead mm-hmm. of going with the the usual group out to uh, lunch after we did our shift, I just told the group that I was going to head back to the border and I was going to cross and, and head back home. And um, so so when I did that, I, I was walking by myself and then I, I got to the border and I was I just had my headphones in. I was listening to a podcast. And then uh, as I'm waiting in the, usually there's a fairly long line through uh, at the border between um, California and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, I someone tapped me on my shoulder and I look behind myself and I see this uh, short Indian girl and I was a little surprised and I said, oh, can I help you? And then um, she she started talking to me and telling me this whole story of how like, like asked me if I could help her because she doesn't know where to like what to do in this situation because she's a little lost and 
for for context, this was this was actually before I was um in line. This was as I was walking towards the the border. Um, she, she had tapped my shoulder and then had asked me some questions about about where to go and about um if she can come with me to the border. And um, I was very surprised and confused because um, it turns out what uh, what happened was this person was she was doing her PhD uh, somewhere in the East Coast. Mm-hmm. She was from India uh, initially, but uh, but came over for her education. Uh, and basically, there there was something that happened where her visa had expired, or uh, yeah, something along with the student visa, where in order to get some kind of recertification or some sort of uh, renewing of the visa, she needed to leave the country and come back for her to get the necessary papers that she needed to get. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the way that some people do this is they either go to Canada or they go to Mexico and then they, they, they will just leave and then come immediately right back through the yeah. borders so that they can get their papers sorted out. And what she had done was she came by herself. She she flew from, I think it was uh, like Pennsylvania or New York. Mm-hmm. She flew to uh, San Diego and then stayed one night uh, in San Diego. And the next morning had come over to cross the border. And then she was planning to come back around, cross the border, and hopefully get her um, her papers figured out. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the like not having anyone else with her at this in this very new place is is a little bit of a scary thing to do because, um, you know, if Tijuana, if if you if you don't know the the right places to go, um, and if you seem like someone who is not from around there, um, you can be very easily misled into. A situation that could be very dangerous sure, yeah. and for me to see uh this person who um like when i was talking to her the first thing that i was thinking of was like this is just like my uh my cousin in india who mm-hmm. uh is at a similar age uh, is also uh, a girl and is someone that uh my cousin wants to pursue higher education in the United States for right. a PhD in economics. So mm-hmm. I really saw my my cousin, who I think of as like a sister, in this per- random person who had tapped my shoulder, who just looked very distraught, very worried, and had just reached out to me specifically because I looked Indian. And then um, after that, I, I, you know, just let her know like, oh, don't worry. Uh, we just had this way to, to get back to where the entrance is to the border. And then uh, I was just trying to calm her down a little bit. And we had walked through and um, I told her that uh, like, as we're walking through, she might have to uh, go to a separate room to, to get some papers filled out that I wouldn't be able to come with, but I, but I'd wait for her outside. And then uh, she was a little uh, worried that she'd be alone again in that, uh, in that environment with these people. She, she was wondering if she would be deported and, all these all these questions that are very concerning especially given that not a lot of people in her family knew that she was actually doing this she did this on her own which mm. uh was a risky move but um you know I, I i told her that i would just wait out outside by uh the the border and uh, i just gave her my my whatsapp number so that she could message me there 
And then um, uh, it, it was a little tricky because uh, it took her like 45 minutes to get through all of the, the papers and the uh, administrative things that she needed to get through. And apparently they, they were giving her a pretty hard time. And for a while, she thought that she wasn't going to get her papers and that she Man. really didn't know what she was going to do if that happened. But luckily, things panned out and um, she was able to get the papers she needed. And mm-hmm. then she came across and then she was just so relieved. And again, I kept seeing my my cousin in this in this person. And mm-hmm. um, the, uh, I, I wanted to just calm her down in some way. And um what came to mind was, I mean, she needed a, a ride back to her um, uh, her hotel that she was staying at. Her flight to go back to the East Coast was the next morning. And um, I the, I had this urge of uh, almost like like a older brother, younger sibling urge of wanting to do something or, or give her something. And, mm-hmm. and what we did was uh, we, before we went uh before i dropped her off at her hotel we went to an indian restaurant and we ate indian food and one that was that was a way for us to uh have a more relaxed conversation she was telling me about her research and about growing up in india she was giving me advice to to tell my cousin who is someone who was interested in applying to phd programs in the u.s about the things that she should think about things that she should uh work on and um, food again, there was, was a way for us to, to connect and to calm down and to, uh, share past experience and to have a, a sense of commonality amidst so many different things that were happening around her and mm. around us during that day. And I think that's once again, a, a very powerful way that, that food can, can really bring you back home in certain ways. And can can let your guard down and can uh, you know calm your spirits in certain ways that that make you more comfortable and make you more relaxed and uh, really allow for a deeper connection with the people that you share an experience like that with. Dude, every time you you tell me that, I I get like goosebumps, and it's just I I can totally understand like where you. Um, get that like big brother vibe from where you're like, Oh, you know, this is someone that I inherently share a connection with um, because of our shared cultural identity. And it's so interesting that that's exactly what it is that led her to reach out to you. And I can't imagine the activation energy it must have taken for her to tap you on the shoulder, you know, at, at the border and be like, you know, I'm, I just don't know what to do right now and I really need help and the fact that you were able to help her is immense so I I want to hear more about what your thoughts were and like what your emotions were going through that because obviously your uh your situation of like getting back into the U.S. was probably not as difficult as as it was for her um but I imagine some of her stress might have uh secondarily been uh pushed on to you yeah I think I think for me I had a, a different kind of stress that was more attached to like what could have happened Hmm. in the sense that um i was very glad that she like tapped me on the shoulder and that we were able to connect but she was so quickly trusting that that everything i was saying was correct and and obviously you know when we were there 
I, I, w- I was trying to look out for her and everything, but I could have very easily been someone who was trying to take advantage of this person in some way. And right. her, um, her uh, eagerness to, to trust in, in a situation like that, where she was in this completely new place, I think it, it, it scared me to think like, what if she tapped on the wrong shoulder of someone else mm. and that something like something bad could have happened in an alternate universe if she asked the wrong person for help in this context right you know and um i think that was something that um uh i I was thinking about and just grateful uh to have happened when uh we ended when when everything ended up working out well and you know she was able to get her papers and she was uh set to continue her uh phd the next day but um it the the whole time I I kept thinking like what if my my cousin Anisha had gone across the border by herself and her reliance on a random stranger was what could potentially bring her back to the country or or through the right track of of getting her papers again mm-hmm. that just it, it it gives me anxiety to think about uh, that being the the way to um, uh, to go about something like that. I think the, it, it must have been like incredibly sobering for you and be like, man, like I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm not in that situation. But from when I, when I hear you say this, my biggest thing is I'm so glad that you were the person that she, um, like reached out to and asked for help. Um, and I, I, I think about this often, but I, <laughs> I'll oftentimes I'll be like, I'm so happy that Samson's future patients are going to Samson for their treatment because like, it's just <laughs> imagine if they like, I, I, I feel, I would feel so much more comfortable, you know, and I would be so happy to hear that someone went to you for their, their medical treatment or, or whatever it may be. Um, I mean, who knows like what, what specialty you're going to be going into, but for whatever procedure or anything, like if they go to you, it's that same idea of like relief almost, you know, that, that you feel when, like I'm so glad that she reached out to you and not someone else who could have made the situation a lot worse. Just like that, I'm going to be so happy for your patients in the future for going to you. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is very kind of you. Hopefully, hopefully I can live up to that. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Dude, I mean, if if your doctor can do a good good Obama impression, that's all you really need, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is very true. Man, the the fact that. I think it's, oh man, it's so cool that you guys shared the meal afterwards and you were able to see that visible relief on, on her face to, to finally be able to talk about things more day to day, like her, her research work and stuff that it, it made me think about um, my, my dad when he, so my dad has had a similar experience, but split into two parts. One was he also had to do this, like going across the border and coming back. Uh, to get like the visa renewed but this was during a time when the U.S. was actually encouraging immigration and he also went to Mexico (laughs) and oh really yeah so he this was probably in the early 90s and he I I didn't know this until a couple weeks back and he he told me and the the funny thing is he I didn't know that he we were we were counting like how many countries we'd been to and so my dad has been to a bunch of countries that I haven't been to like uh Kuwait and Iraq and the Philippines and um I've been to Brazil and and uh South America but he hasn't and 
I was like, oh, but like, we were talking about the times we've been to Mexico. And uh, my dad was like, oh, there was one time when I went to Mexico, like in the early 90s. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah. Uh, and the only memorabilia, the only thing that I have from that event is when he went to Mexico, he bought a pair of parachute pants <laughs> because that was popular what? back then. <laughs> in Mexico, he bought them? In Mexico. So we have uh, this... Uh, era of 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 clothing culture immortalized in my dad's closet by by these parachute pants um so that's so funny i <laughs> it's i never my dad has worn these pants on a very occasional basis like once every uh dozen years um and so i've only seen him wear it once <laughs> <laughs> but the the second part of this is another experience my dad had and it was when he was so he was working in kuwait and he the 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 end of his contract was not he so okay he 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 was i don't i don't know if he was contracted by an indian company but he had just left india and he was working in kuwait and he a couple months into working there is when saddam hussein uh started the iraqi invasion of kuwait and there's a, a fantastic movie called Airlift that I, I have yet to watch, but my parents tell me about it all the time, about how the Indian government uh, airlifted uh, hundreds of Indian citizens from Kuwait back to the, uh, back to India. I almost said back to the U.S., uh, back to <laughs> India um, for the sake of their safety. And my dad once told me that that meal that he had on the flight, like no one really ever looks forward to airplane meals. I used to when I was little, but no longer. Um, mm -hmm. That meal was, it was, you know, a, a prepackaged meal from India. It was Indian food. Um, and my dad had been working in Kuwait until then. He was like, it was one of the best meals I had, I'd ever had. I mean, it's <laughs> an airplane meal, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Wow. I did not know your your dad had these experiences. That's so funny. Yeah, it's it's been so interesting to I, we we spoke a couple of days back about hearing about our parents' experiences and and maybe even like recording their their voice one day to to hear their thoughts at any given point in time. But it's always nice to hear uh, that you know they're also human. They've made their own mistakes and everything. Um, but to hear about these things that. I never even thought that, you know, like I, I, I can't really imagine who my dad was when he was our age because he was so different from who he is today. Um, and like he's been to like he, he knows Gujarati because he worked uh, and uh, studied a little bit in Gujarat. And he he knows Hindi because he's traveled in, in northern India and, and worked there and, and all that kind of stuff. And like learning about that side of his life where he didn't really have a grasp on what he wanted to do with his career. Um, and most of his intentionality was around like providing a, a good um, uh, upbringing for his future children's and children's <laughs> a good upbringing for his future children and, and a good uh, stable source of support for his family. But super, super interesting to hear their anecdotes. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what I'd like to hear your thoughts on, um, uh is what do you think is the the impact and the uh sometimes the utility of food and of eating together and and to to start this off two two things that i think of immediately are 
one in in certain contexts food brings you home in some way mm-hmm. and you know i think that's a combination of the gustatory and the olfactory system that you have that i mean let's see the like I, I think I remember reading something about, you know, since the olfactory bulb uh, where your smelling sense is processed is right next to the hippocampus. Uh, people say that sometimes that's why smell is often associated with memory. Um, I, you know, I think that's that's one reason why potentially uh, having a food that you had when you were a kid or when you were uh, in a different place, say, when you were in India before you had immigrated to the U.S., can really transport you back in time and give you some sense of nostalgia and familiarity as you are uh, eating and consuming that. And, and so, so that's one thing that I think is is the power of food. In, in some situations, it can bring you home. It can bring you some familiarity in during times when you are somewhat lost. Um, mm-hmm. I think another thing that food or just the act of eating food does is it gives you structure in a way that uh, facilitates uh, relationships in 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 different in different dynamics. So the first thing that I think of is in my dad's home in uh, in Kerala, India, in this small village called Pampakuda, uh the, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, those are times where everyone in the whole family comes into this uh, this dining room that has, it's this big circular table. And then in the middle of it, they have uh, something called a, a spinning jenny, I think is what it's called. I'm not sure if that's what it's called. It's like a lazy Susan? Lazy Susan. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> not a spinning jenny, a lazy Susan. <laughs> um, but basically... Inside the the big circle, there is a smaller circle that rotates. And what we do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner is whoever is cooking will cook a, a bunch of different kinds of food, and then we'll put it all in the middle turning circle part of the table. And then uh, everyone in the family will always come together and sit together. And that's a time where you have this intergenerational exchange that I think usually in other contexts might not happen as uh as fluidly because you know the the younger kids generally and the younger cousins generally tend to hang out amongst themselves the older uncles and aunts they'll have their own uh kind of interactions there but uh but breakfast lunch and dinner is the time where everyone is always around together in the same place and at the same time and mm-hmm then are really able to to have the intergenerational exchange that doesn't as often happen in other places. Hmm. Okay. So can you, can you really quickly summarize these two things that, that you've brought up? Uh, right. So, so, so one, one thing I'd say with food is that food can bring you home in some way, mm-hmm. whether it's through nostalgia, whether it's through smell that reminds you of, of where you were when you ate this last, um, and I think I think that in itself is very powerful. And the second thing is that I think the active eating food, the, the fact that nourishing ourselves with this kind of sustenance is a necessity, that in itself provides a constancy in uh, in a world where we might have all different priorities and different interactions. Um, it brings us all back together 
on a consistent basis to have, at least in a familial context, uh, intergenerational exchange and having a togetherness that might not otherwise be there in the same way. Hmm. Okay. So uh, let me try and simplify this down into two broad categories. So one seems like the utility of food, and uh, this comes with the social constancy of meals and that sort of thing. And the other seems to be the nostalgia of food, uh, smells, association with memories, and the I guess the more biological aspect. So I'll talk about the social constancy and the utility of food now, and we'll jump into the nostalgia factor and stuff uh, in the next episode. The constancy of meals uh, and the the ability to connect over meals, that's something that's been portrayed throughout human history. And I think the the best example of that is Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving dinner is uh, stereotypically this family affair where everyone gets together and there's, you know, family drama and everyone's gossiping and, you know, you're having a great time. I mean, those two things, maybe you're not having a great time, but um, you're having a, this wonderful extravagant meal with other people and it is regular uh, annually. Um, and so I think that's kind of, uh, if, if we start diluting it from there, we have other events like maybe Christmas dinner, uh, Easter dinner, uh, other uh, events that you have throughout the year, and then maybe more, even more regular meals. So on a daily basis, like you're saying with your family in Pampagada, it's like, okay, breakfast is something that everyone needs together. Or lunch is something that everyone needs together. Dinner is something that everyone needs together. Um, I, I think that that is something that, I have felt while I'm at home where during my childhood, so I, I have one older brother and live with both of my parents. So during my childhood, we would primarily eat dinner, all four of us together. And what happened in high school was our schedules started slowly drifting apart where I, so I played volleyball while I was in high school. So I would often have practice or games um, after school. And so uh, my mom would sometimes like bring me a snack or something. And then I would come back home uh, pretty late and have meals a little later than everyone else. Um, And my brother was in swimming in high school. So his swim practice would be in the morning. So what happened was our breakfasts were kind of out the window because I would eat. my, My brother would be out the door before I woke up and I would eat breakfast in the car or something. Lunch was something I would eat at school. My brother would eat at school. My parents would uh, eat at home or at work. And then dinner, the final meal that we had had together up until then, started becoming divided. And so my brother would eat at a certain time. My mom would eat at a certain time. My dad at a certain time and I at a certain time. And it's interesting that right now we're all, uh, because of quarantine, at home together again, uh, but our ske- schedules are still a little off where my dad usually eats the earliest and then I usually eat in the middle and then my um, brother uh, eats last. And there are, there are hours of gap between this. But there have been certain occasions where we uh, cook together, where like I'll, I will cook something with my mom or we will, for some reason, all, all of our schedules will align and we will all share a meal together at the same time. And there's, there's something honestly kind of magical about that experience just because it's been something that we've been lacking for so long. And I think it kind of comes to exactly what you're saying where it, it actually maybe combines two of the things that you said where it brings me back, uh, it brings me a little bit of nostalgia of times when there was 
uh, consistency, like a, a daily schedule with with eating like that. And I think that the biggest part of that nostalgia comes from when I would come home from school or from volleyball and I would be eating a snack and and my mom would be sitting at the dining table with me. That would be when I debriefed my mom on everything that happened in the day. Like, what were the club meetings like? Uh, did I have any tests? Uh, was I working on any projects? Um, like, who who did I spend lunch with that day? Uh, all that kind of stuff. And that was an, an invaluable thing for me in, in high school because every day when I came home, I would have this chance to, to debrief with my mom and uh, give her all the details. And so throughout, uh, high, until the end of high school, until I left to college, she had the, the latest and greatest about uh, what was going on in school and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was nice to have that connection with my mom. Um, I guess all this to say that I haven't really had that consistency that, that you're talking where everyone comes together uh, to eat a meal as of late. Sharing a meal in some way is a commonality across a number of very different kinds of social interactions that we have as humans. But even with family, when when family is visiting, one uh, thing that we try to, at least that my mom tries to make sure they do, is uh, uh, that they are fed in some way, either with snacks or with uh, they stay for dinner. And that's something that in the Indian community is something that is very much emphasized and uh, is a part of I mean, I mean, when we go back to India, right, there's a lot of like family friends that we have to go visit that we might not know mm -hmm. of much of them. But, you know, they'll say some story about how they held us when they, they, we were two years old and something like that. Right. And it becomes obligation <laughs> for us to go all to, to all these houses and we can get pretty stuffed. Right. Because in each house, it's uh, almost essential <laughs> because of the uh, the custom and the tradition there for every person to come out with some kind of snack along with some kind of drink and for us to sit and share a meal with conversation. And, uh, right. you know, I see that all the time there with, with dates, with, with friends, if you're ever catching up, if it's ever in mm -hmm. person, it's usually over a meal, even in, uh, in business interactions, when there's a client meeting, that's oftentimes over a meal. When there's a seminar, that's usually over a meal. When, um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember when I had my first day of my internship, we always, uh, and the last day of our of my internship for one of my summers that uh, started off with an intern lunch and it ended with an intern lunch. And right. it was a way to, to book in that experience there. And I wonder if there is uh, a kind of inherent intimacy that comes from choosing to share a meal with someone that mm -hmm. uh, that adds some weight to this kind of shared experience. Uh, between these two people that that makes the uh, the time that is shared one that has been marked as uh, something that matters something that that uh, you'd want to have some intentionality behind you'd want to uh, have some preparation towards and hmm. yeah interesting I there, there are a couple of things uh, that come to mind when um, you're describing these these different situations in which we're offered food. One is when we when we're invited to like a family friend's house and there there's always food present. One, I'm curious as to where that tradition started from because um, as as you can imagine, 
for us, it seems that that is common courtesy. Like you never have someone over and you don't offer them anything. In fact, a, a comment that I will often hear when I go to someone else's place and I don't accept uh, to another uh, Indian household and I don't accept anything is when they come over and they like speak to my parents or my grandparents or whoever is there, they'll be like, oh, and he didn't even accept water. <laughs> like <laughs> I was like turning everything down or something. And so I'm thinking, where did that courtesy come from? Like always having uh, something present for the other person to, to eat or drink. And what comes to mind is uh, some things from uh, from Hinduism where there's one concept that is Aditi uh, Devobaha, which means, or something like that, which basically means uh, guest is God. So basically you treat mm. uh, guests as though they are God. And there is some mythology that goes along with that where there was an instance where the guest was actually God, and I think that's mm. a, a really good teaching point. Um, but there, there's basically like three main groups that you that you treat as God. One is your teachers, other one is your parents, and other one is guests, whoever that may be. And so mm. I think part of this is like we want to be not only courteous, but as respectful and as caring for guests, whoever may come through our door, wherever, whether, whether we know them or not. So I think that's part of it. The second one, and this might just be um, uh, more of like a, a skeptic and a realist inside me, but I feel like having food and water present just makes things less awkward where it's like when there is an awkward silence, you can just like pick up food or something. Yeah. And uh -huh. you're never going to like start coughing and not have water or something to drink at your hands if that is always presented, you know? Right. I, I agree with that because I... Think about situations where if you're isolated with the person and the person is new and the only thing that you're doing is talking to, to the other person, mm -hmm. you can get a little bit anxious about if there's any moments of silence, you know, how am I going to right. fill that? How are we going to carry these conversations? Especially if it's someone that maybe you don't immediately click with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously if it's a, if it's a close friend or someone that is more familiar, you don't worry about those kinds of things, but having food as a kind of crutch to to facilitate conversation to facilitate the interaction without worrying as much about the uh direct conversation that's happening i think is something that adds some levity to uh those social situations for the same reason why uh for for some people it's a lot easier to catch up over a walk rather than sitting down um, at the same place and looking at each other mm -hmm. and having a conversation for the entire time there because uh, on a walk you know you're there's an activity that goes alongside the conversation that you're having mm -hmm. whereas if you're both sitting in a like library room and just talking there or also i guess what what, what i'm thinking of here now is in this new zoom world that we live in and during quarantine where essentially we don't have uh any of those niceties that that help uh, aid these social interactions. We don't have food to to share with someone. We don't have an activity we can do with them necessarily in terms mm -hmm. of going for a walk or playing some kind of game. And I wonder if there is a certain loss we get from that mm -hmm. compared to if uh, we were able to share some other activity while we're having a conversation with someone. I, I really want to explore a little further this idea of 
having food um, secondarily to a conversation or doing some sort of activity secondarily to a conversation because most people I feel like uh, are not like us where they don't just sit down and just talk <laughs> for right. hours on end. Right. And oftentimes it's okay, let's, uh, you know, go do some activity whether it be a sport or golf or something like that where or taking a walk where it's like you know we can do something and walk at the same time where I see a bunch of different aspects to this one is let's multitask you know and let's get something done during this conversation and that makes uh perhaps you might think oh well they don't find enough value in this conversation that they want to multitask or this conversation isn't the priority for them. So they want to be doing something else productive while they're doing this. So, okay, let's take a walk or let's have a meal or something like that. And the same thing in social situations when you're like, oh, let's catch up over lunch. It's because I don't have any other time in my day to talk to you. But if you talk to me <laughs> while I am feeding, then I will, then I will have time for you. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and I feel like, eating is one of those things that we have to have to do and everyone has to do it um there are other hobbies and other pastimes that we can have like playing golf or going on walks that other people may not enjoy doing and it might actually be detrimental to the conversation to someone who does not like walking like hey let's go on a walk and talk and they're gonna be like oh the entire time <laughs> i think if you said hey let's like go get food regardless of where that person's from, what their background is, how fit they are, they're going to want to eat food. And I think that makes it like a universal binder. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because as we talk about this, what, where my mind goes towards is there was an article that I'd read a while ago that talked about the different dynamics between uh, a, a male to male friendship versus a male to female uh, friendship. Hmm. And, uh, and I, I resonated with it in in a few ways because it was describing how uh, in a male-to-male platonic friendship, um, oftentimes the uh, shared experience is something that is activity-driven where they're mm. doing something together, whether it's uh, like playing basketball or like going on a hike or going sure. on some kind of adventure. and uh along with that activity that's when they're they're talking and things like that whereas in a in a male female platonic friendship uh that one is it's less activity driven and more conversational as like the primary uh uh reason for for that interaction so and which one of us is the female <laughs> <laughs> no but but uh, i'll caveat that with by saying that um in in my relationships uh, at school and in in family, I I noticed that with the uh, platonic like friendships I have with uh, with my female classmates and and colleagues and friends, uh, I feel like a lot of the times when we're catching up or when we're checking in with with each other, it very much is uh, like oh we're just going to go grab some coffee or oh we we sit outside from class and just catch up for thirty minutes mm -hmm. and. There's no other activity necessarily we're doing besides just catching up with each other mm. and and having a conversation. Whereas my um, interactions with some of my other friends uh, who were who are male in the med school are uh, oftentimes attached to, attached to some kind of activity. Mm. Like we're either going to go play music and uh, you know we talk 
while we're playing music and or we're going to go play basketball or we uh are decide to go to like a comedy show or something like that mm -hmm. and i think I've, I've seen that 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 difference in some of my dynamics play out i think w for you and i it's different because i think we go back and forth between those pretty seamlessly right. but um but i have noticed uh for myself a gender difference in terms of that kind of interaction i, I was wondering if hmm. you ever felt that with either family or your friends I'm, in some way i'm wondering if this is one thing I was wondering is, so here you've explained, okay, between a male and a female and between a male and a male, how about between female and female? You know, how, how does that uh, interaction play into this? I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, specul if, I, if I would speculate, it could be similar to the male-male interaction. And yeah, the reason I'm thinking that is I feel like we might have a preconceived notion in our head that other males would have similar... Um, interests to us, uh, whether it be a, a mm. sport or something like that. In general, I've found that I have a heterogeneity of experience, whether it be I'm hanging out with uh, a male friend or a female friend. And I'm, I'm not really able to say that it goes one way or the other uh, in either situation, because I, I'm trying to think of past recent situations where, where i've been hanging out one-on-one -on -one with someone else it, with the intention of catching up because we haven't uh, or i haven't seen them in, in a while we haven't seen each other um but for example when usually when i hang out with you i feel like sometimes we have the intention to go and do something but oftentimes it uh becomes paralyzed uh in a conversation and we, mm -hmm. we just kind of stop what we're doing and we just continue the conversation which i frankly enjoy and um, one of my friends back home, uh, whenever we hang out, we have nothing planned, but we always do something. And, and she's a woman. And so w one thing that we did was we're like, OK, what are things that we can do in our small, sleepy town? Oh, well, there's Mount Diablo. Let's just climb up Mount Diablo. So we just climbed up Mount Diablo and we were having a great hmm. conversation the whole way up. Um, and similarly, down in San Diego, uh, my friend Avi, one of the things he does is he's super, super into cycling. And I can hardly keep up with him, but it's always nice to go on a long bike ride with him and share a conversation uh, along the ride. So again, in, in both of these situations, I feel like uh, it's two people um, and w one being male, one being female. And yet I prefer, I guess, subconsciously to be doing an activity with both of them while we're catching up. At the same time, with both of them, I've also had instances where we're just sitting and talking. So kind of mm. hard to vet. Interesting. Interesting. I, I've noticed for myself uh, during quarantine, this has also manifested in the sense that uh, the, the trends that I had described with my relationships has stayed consistent in the Zoom world because... Uh, with those female friends, you know, like every two weeks we'll have a scheduled catch up or something like that, mm -hmm. or we'll just do a Zoom call, and it's just like, just like usual how we would have caught up if we were in person. Mm -hmm. Whereas for uh, my guy friends uh, in med school, uh, the times I've interacted with them is when I physically go back to campus and we do some sort of socially distant uh, hangout, whether mm -hmm. it's like playing basketball or like trying to get, uh, like walk around sitting outside, something like that. And for those interactions, it seems, I, I, I wonder what it is that is uh, leading to that difference. I wonder if it's something about masculinity 
and um an aversion from this kind of uh intimacy that i think is inherent when you don't have any distractions hmm. uh that are like a platonic intimacy when you don't have distractions that can come from an activity mm-hmm. um whereas i feel like that that i i don't subconsciously think about that hmm. when i am interacting with my female friends and uh yeah it might almost be a, and this is all speculation, but it, it might be uh, how we or how vulnerable we subconsciously want to portray ourselves. And in the situation yeah. where we're just having a conversation with someone or, you know, just setting apart time in order to have a conversation with someone, we might seem like much softer, you know, and, and much less uh, of, I, I don't know, perhaps the typical stereotype of a man. I'm not really sure. Um, but I've found that uh, even with new friends that I've made uh, who are male in med school, when I uh, there, there there was one friend Samson that uh, we were we were talking about, and you were like, yeah, you should be very intentional and go hang if you want to go hang out with them, go hang out with them, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, Samson, that that's a good idea. And so we we had lunch, and all we did was talk, you know, and it wasn't over some other kind of activity. I think that. Perhaps when I find a shared interest with a um, a male colleague or male friend, I'm more likely to actively pursue both of us uh, doing some doing that shared interest uh, while catching up. And so it's kind of a two birds with one stone situation. And whereas with uh, female colleagues or, or female friends, uh, I I guess I have less of that desire to have a secondary activity during the catch up, and I'm more like, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take this conversation um, uh, for what it is, and just like put 100 percent of myself into the conversation with no distractions. I'm not really sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I wonder where that that initial framework comes from because I'd imagine with uh, the people that we are close with, regardless of gender that uh that initial framework kind of dissolves and you just are your your full self and there's no side that you necessarily fall into mm-hmm. but like for you and me uh i would say that it's not necessarily attached more to the activity side or just the um like conversational side i think it's just a mix of both and we we go back and forth depending on the situation right mm-hmm. um i i wonder if there is a certain threshold of of trust or of uh kind of comfort that you can reach on a on a friendship level level that then allows you to uh i guess be more vulnerable in in that way Hmm. it could be i i'm trying to think about our friendship history and things generally i guess I guess with most of my friends, but for us, things started off with us doing OCHEM homework together or biochem homework together or something like that. And so it was us hanging out and us having like long midnight conversations was dependent on us having this shared activity. And then over time, as we became closer, we decided that 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 veil was no longer necessary and we could just show our true emotions for each other. (laughs) Yeah, that is interesting. That is really interesting because I feel like I'm kind of doing the same thing with my male friends where I think I, or in in med school, where I think uh, the activity is a, a way for us to like 
get closer to eventually have, I think, the the comfort level to be able to have conversations without needing an activity mm-hmm. and to just coexist and to hang out and to be close in that way. I wonder what this, what the implications are in terms of how we keep in touch with friends as well, because I've found that in general, um, I am the, for the people I keep in touch with, especially when we are apart for a long period of time, uh, or I'll, I guess I'll, I'll flip this t- uh, the other way. When I'm in person and able to meet up with people, I'm more likely to meet up with male friends more than female friends. And this is obviously has a huge amount of bias in it because I probably have more male friends than female friends. Um, but I feel like when, especially when we're socially distant and when I'm in a different country or a different state or something like that, I'm more likely to remotely keep in touch with female friends. Uh, and yeah, then, th- yeah, that's exactly what, what I felt in the past couple of months with, with my friends here. Right. Yeah. And then, but then when you meet up in person, you're more likely to be meeting up with your male friends then, right? And less likely to be keeping in touch with them while you're distant. Right, right. Yeah, that is interesting. I think this, this became very, um, I think over time as like during my years of college, as I spent more time outside of the United States, I realized that every time this was so bizarre, but whenever, like the one time I went to India for like five months and I did not speak to you or Anvesh or Akhil that much then. I mean, I I was in touch in general. um, But when I came back, it was as though I never left. And like the friendship was it, 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 we started back again exactly where we had left off and it it was the same thing with uh, all of my other friends like even my frisbee friends and everything like that but over time while I was in India I would more often keep in touch with my female friends and perhaps they are more they are also more likely to reach out to me knowing that I'm in you know a different hemisphere Hmm. we've come a, a quite a long way from food yeah, I I think there's still some interesting things to explore here about food, though, and I feel like a lot of them are going to become like, is it a chicken or the egg kind of situation where, mm. oh, do did did sharing food actually precede the social interaction around food? Like, was it a necessity for uh, humans hundreds of years ago to come together and share food for the most efficient d- dispersal of food? Or was it more like humans just so innately require social interaction and then food became uh, auxiliary to that, you know? Do you have any thoughts on that? Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to pin down, but but a memory that comes up for me in this past year is I was uh, uh, planning to catch up with one of my friends in med school and uh, we had planned like, oh, let's let's go grab coffee in the place that we usually grab coffee every few weeks. And then uh, we both met up in front of the coffee place. And then um, she had mentioned that, like, oh, she doesn't need any coffee because, like, she had brought some coffee from home in her, like, travel mug. And I, then I, after she said, said that, I was like, oh, I, I don't really want coffee either. I guess I was kind of just using that <laughs> as an excuse to, like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go get coffee and we'll, we'll uh, have our catch-up uh, with coffee as a, um, like, little uh scaffold to to lean on for that social interaction sure. but then mm-hmm. but then we just we just went outside to the the table and then we just sat down and we were just catching up mm-hmm. and uh 
that that was that was really interesting <laughs> to me because like oh we don't we don't need to like pretend that what this is is like that we need coffee to to be able to have this conversation we can just message like, hey let's catch up let's go sit somewhere and talk you know mm. but i think that is that is a somewhat more um vulnerable thing to say right. or, or or to request whereas if you if you attach a, like a food or beverage into it it becomes like oh we we all need these things these necessities right. <laughs> uh might as well also have a conversation while we, you know, get the sustenance. <laughs> we might as it well say, like... hey, do you want to go outside and breathe with me? We both need to breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like this little illusion that we we create to uh, to not be like completely vulnerable or um, intentional with the uh, the intimacy that I think we'd like to share. Right. With, with our, our friendships. There's uh, a Seinfeld episode in which uh, Elaine and her then boyfriend are making assumptions about each other's race. And neither of them knows the exact race of the other person because uh, of how they look. And at the end, they realize that they are both the same race. And they were like, oh, but I thought you were this. And the other person's like, no, but I thought you were this. And they're like, so we're both just like the same. And they're like, I guess so. And they're like, okay, you, you want to go to the Gap or something? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then they just go shopping. <laughs> what? I don't know. Appar- apparently that's a, a stereotype for their shared race. But uh, I don't know. I don't want to make any assumptions or anything. But hey, it, they they realized that they were making all these assumptions. Like, oh, you know, you probably like this music, so I'll listen to this music. Or you probably like this kind of food, so let's go eat there or something like that. But once that all blew over... Um, I don't know. I guess I guess that's kind of a reality that it's good for us to tackle at the beginning where it's like, I don't really drink coffee either, you know? So when other people are like, hey, like, let's go get coffee. I'm usually like, sure. And then I get water or something like that. And for right. me, the, the most important thing there is the social interaction. And I yeah. think you're totally right in saying that if you just say, hey, like, let's just go hang out or something, there is a, a, a certain amount of vulnerability there that we don't always feel comfortable um putting forward especially when that person is someone we've newly met right i have another comment on 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 food here hit me so in the conversation about uh food and utility there was a another angle that i was thinking about that uh that i was reminded of because of some interactions that i've had in the past in work and academic settings and one example that i can recall immediately was at the beginning of a summer internship where you know, myself and another co-intern started on the same day. And that day for lunch, uh, he had said, oh, we should uh, go out for lunch and just, just uh, like, do that together. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So then we went out to Redwood City. We uh, we got a meal at, uh, I think, like a taco place. But then something that he did, which I thought was a cool power move for a first interaction, was he bought uh like some appetizers for us to share mm-hmm. and it was like oh whoa this is a this is a cool move to to make and i i immediately just liked him more for for doing something like that you mm-hmm. know and uh i was like in the future when i when i meet someone like this i i would love to to be the guy that like gets fries for the table or something like that right you know and and you know i've had other interactions with um like you, you've met akenna right he was a classmate of mine oh, in my man. master's and and when we had all gone out to, uh, we did a Spartan race together, mm-hmm. uh, a group of us in our cohort. And after that, we went out to dinner. And um, it was at a like kind of pricey place uh, where everything was usually over like 15 to $20. Mm-hmm. And in, in those kinds of places, at least at 
this time of, of my life, I usually try to uh, get the cheaper thing on the menu. Mm-hmm. So I just got this very boring soup that was like eight dollars. And then everyone Did else you just put the ketchup in things. a bowl and then drink it. <laughs> you caught me. You caught me. Uh, just going back to my four year old days. Anyways. Uh, Wait, you got to explain that real quick. Oh, man. I don't know if people want to hear this. Basically, Samson uh, used to really like ketchup when he was younger. Used to. Samson so really, really likes like ketchup. ketchup. <laughs> And when Samson was four or three years old, uh, his mother was looking for him and couldn't find him. And then eventually found Samson underneath the dining table, drinking a bottle of ketchup. <laughs> like straight bottle to mouth. No, nothing in between. No French no fries. fries no, there we go. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. And okay. then uh, many years later was when I figured out Oh, ketchup just has a lot of sugar in it. That's why I like ketchup. I just like sugar. <laughs> Said Samson, the pre-diabetic. Um, anyways, back to this conversation. Uh, so so I had ordered just like a very cheap soup, uh, pretending that I had a craving for soup that day. And that was why I got this lame mm-hmm. meal. And then um, I kind of, you know, he's like an attending surgeon. So, you know, he could, he could eat what he wants <laughs> at, uh, at the restaurant. But then... He ordered this, these, like, two appetizers that were, like, very fancy for the table. And I was just like, man, love this guy. <laughs> like, I just immediately, I mean, I already had a lot of admiration for this uh, classmate. But I just thought it was such a classy move to, to buy something like that for the table. And when I think about the utility of food in this context that we describe here, I, I, I feel like there's a certain element of, of that can be strategic in, in some ways where mm. um, by... By being the person who takes the initiative to provide the food or to pay for something uh, in one of those social encounters, you inherently, without without uh, kind of proving anything from any kind of social interaction, you immediately develop some more credibility or some more likability just from doing that one act. And mm-hmm. then, I mean... We talked about dates earlier too, right? I I mean, you I wouldn't say this offer is like strategic. To but... Buy the other person's meal, yeah. Right, right, and I think, uh, there there is some element of that there too, right? Right. You can uh, you can catch Samson's newest book, How to Buy Respect, in bookstores near <laughs> you. <laughs> Just buy Samson ketchup. They respect you forever. <laughs> So let's end this episode there and uh, we will pick up in the next episode. So there will be a part two in this discussion about food where we will go a little more in depth into our thoughts on the biological aspects uh, as well as the nostalgia and uh, the basis of food preferences. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you to our future selves for uh, playing this recording back and we will catch you guys in the next one.